Welcome to Subtext and Discourse. I'm your host, Michael Dooney. I don't like adding a date to these episodes, but given the current circumstances, I think it's worth noting that today is Monday, 30th of March, 2020. Like most, I'm still struggling to comprehend how much the world has changed since I recorded this last interview only four weeks ago. On the 28th of February, I met up with Berlin-based curator and author Lena Fliesbach, not only to learn about her journey in the art world, but to hear more about her latest exhibition, Zero Waste, at the Museum of Visual Arts in Leipzig. The exhibition was scheduled to open last Thursday on the 26th of March. However, like all events and public gatherings, it has been postponed until further notice. This exhibition is of particular relevance as it showcases artists addressing themes such as sustainability, globalization, and industrialized animal agriculture, which whether we like it or not, are going to have to contend with. So without giving everything away, I hope you enjoy listening to my conversation with Lena. Yeah, but I think we met in the gallery and then we met on different occasions yeah. in the art scene. Maybe it was before you did the Schaufenster to show. Yeah, definitely. Because you did the show in Charlottenburg at that person's house with all the photography. Oh, have you been there? Yeah. This is Hannah's house. Really? Oh, okay. That's maybe where we met together. Also. I mean, oh yeah, I invited you to yeah, that because, yeah, of course, that was okay, that was like a private show. This was one of the projects Hannah and me, we did together. Yeah. It's, it's true that there were a lot of photographers involved also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That must be why then. I guess that's the link that we've had initially was through photography. But then we're I kind of both so. branching into <laughs> to different things. Yeah. The main reason I wanted to meet up to talk was the, the zero waste exhibition that you have coming up at the Fine Art Museum in Leipzig. Yeah, it's the Museum of Fine Arts, Museum der Bildenden Künste in Leipzig. And it's a huge museum. I think at the moment they have 16 exhibitions running per- parallel from the Middle Ages, Impressionism and also contemporary art. Definitely for me and Hannah, it's the biggest show we ever curated. Well, maybe we can like have it do in a movie and they show the end and then they go back to the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Because you're quite at a, even to think to get to that point, because you don't work for the museum, you're Mm -hmm. essentially, you're an independent curator. Mm -hmm. And I imagine a lot of curators when they're at university or when they're studying or when they get into the field, that's a dream exhibition to have. You didn't start at that point. Were you an artist before? No, I was never an artist. I studied art history. Mm Mm-hmm quite classic (laughs) but um, and then already during my studies I started to organize exhibitions and to make contacts with the art school some artists some other people who wanted to do some art projects and we just started to experiment and try out things yeah was this in Berlin in Berlin yes I studied at the free university Freie Universität in Dahlem And I think I had one or two courses in the university where we connected with the art schools. Mm -hmm. And this was really helpful, you know. For example, there was one course, us, the art history students, we wrote some texts for an exhibition of the students of the Weissensee Art School. I'm still friends with some of them. You know, those connections, they were really helpful because... Basically, the art history, um, it's more conservative, more classic. It's more... Um, yeah, it's art history, not future. Like you're... Of course, yeah, most of... 
Most of the people who study art history, they end up, for example, as a professor or art historian somewhere. And what I'm doing now, working as an independent curator in contemporary art, is a little bit different. Because, for example, in the university at this moment, we didn't have any professor who was specialized in contemporary art. Really? Yeah. Just in the end, in my last year, uh, one professor came to our university. And of course, in Berlin, it's more easy because you can also visit classes at the Humboldt University. You can go to the UDK, University of Arts, and you are more flexible. You can visit all the museums, all the exhibitions. But still, nobody told me, okay, you can be a, an independent curator yeah. with this old <laughs> studies, you know? Yeah, I never really thought of it like that because if somebody goes to study geography it's pretty much assumed you're going to be a geography teacher and I guess if you're doing art history you're working for a museum in the archives and looking after existing material but in terms of looking towards what's either happening currently or what's going to happen yeah, yeah I, maybe that's why there's been a bit of an influx in curatorial studies because before there weren't really courses just dedicated to curating whereas mm -hmm. now they are so from that point, the context of photography. Oh, actually, before that, you were you went to Spain as well, so. Oh, that's true. Yeah, it was in 2005, 2006. Oh. I did my Erasmus year in Spain mm -hmm. and I lived in Granada. You know, have you been to Granada? It's um it's the city in in the south of Spain and Andalusia yeah. and where the Alhambra is. It's a very special city and I really love to live there, to be there. I traveled to Morocco and traveled also to other cities in, in the south of Spain. There's also Cordoba, Sevilla, like a lot of cities with cultural heritage. And I also learned Spanish. I mean, I could speak a little bit Spanish before, but then... Um, yeah, when you're immersed. Yeah, because also the accent in the south of Spain is very, very strong. So it's a little bit like if you would come to Austria and try to learn German, you know. So I was very proud when I could understand the people. And um, yeah, that was really nice to learn a, learn another language. And I guess from a, maybe not from a educational or studying point of view, but personally, maybe it had quite an impact on you, like living and working there or studying. Definitely. I mean, it was a totally different experience for me because I come from Hamburg, which is quite a big city. And then I lived in Berlin. And I mean, you also live in Berlin. You know what it's like. You always need at least half an hour to meet yeah. up someone <laughs> to go somewhere. And uh, in Granada, you can walk everywhere. I was walking uh, to the university and to meet up with friends or actually I enjoyed also the weather yeah <laughs> it is hot but you can Granada is um, also close to the mountains mm -hmm. so you can if you want you can ski and oh, really? swim in the sea on the same day I didn't know there was skiing in Spain yeah wow yeah okay Personally, I think it's very nice to just live in different parts of the world and to meet other people. And I still have loads of connections to Spain. So I'm trying to piece together what part of your early education or your studies that would have been. But your thesis was on street photography. So was the interest in photography prior to you starting the art history or that happened during? Yeah, I think in I I had some classes at university in the history of photography and then in the end 
also one or two classes about contemporary photography and I started more and more to visit exhibitions and to meet up with artists and I was very interested in photography at that moment and so I decided to write my thesis about it because I think it's the best what you can do is to write about something what you really like. So my thesis was about aspects of staging in contemporary street photography. I wrote also about the history of street photography and then I wrote about three photographers, Tobias Siloni, Philip Lorca di Corsia and Beat Streuli. It was in 2010, okay. so it's That's already 10 yeah. years ago. But <laughs> <laughs> Is it from that that you ended up working for the Women Donata Vendors? Yeah, actually, yes, I finished my studies. And then one week later, I think I started my first job for Women Donata Vendors. Oh, wow. You just applied or they... I just applied. Yeah. I mean, I knew one of the colleagues who worked there. I knew, oh no, it was like a friend of mine who was also a photographer. He told me about it because a friend of another friend was working there and then I applied. Wim has a production company for his movies, but also another small company which is focused on the whole archive of Donata Vendors and Wim Vendors, the whole photography archive. And and that's their personal photography? It's their personal photography, like all the negatives, all the projects you somehow have to archive it or organize a structure that you find the images again and we also organized exhibitions for example when they publish photographs in magazines or books we organized also some book projects or also when when people wanted to buy a photograph oh, like the licensing and things like that the license yes so comparing that experience to when you studied art history the archival aspect of it would have been what you would have done during university, but everything else, I assume, would have been new, almost. Yeah, it was yeah. new. Yeah, <laughs> it was definitely new, but it was great to learn everything there because, you know, this company, it's very small. We were mm. only like two people. So it was very nice for me to work with photographers, which have amazing work, Wim and also Donata. Also to organize exhibitions in professional art galleries. I wasn't the curator, but I helped to organize everything and I learned a lot. And then after that, is that when you went to Term? After that, I went to Galerie, Galerie Turm. Turm. Yeah, so Galerie in the Tower. Galerie in the Tower, <laughs> yeah. Galerie in Turm, yeah. Galerie in the Tower. I always get confused if it's Frankfurter Tour or Frankfurter Allee. Mm -hmm. Frankfurter Tour, yeah. I mean, Frankfurter Allee is close to there, but Frankfurter Tour is the... Uh, Warschauer Straße, the intersection to Kreuzberg. Yes. Exactly. And so would you say that that was your first curatorial experience? I organized some exhibitions before during my studies, but it was the first time I really had a space where I could try everything out and experiment and organize exhibitions. And you know, the Galerium Turm, the gallerist retired and he was there for like loads of years. And then they started a new concept. And the concept is it's like a trainee program or something like That's that. That's the impression that I got. Because yes. it's also connected to the Kunstraum or Kunsthaus Britannia exactly. or something. 
yeah. um, the Kunstraum Kreuzberg, Bethanien, Stefan Bauer, he came up with the idea to make a trainee program, which means that for two years there's always a curator or a team and they can basically do whatever they want with the space for two years. And then another curator starts to work there. And I was actually the first one in this program. Wow. I mean, it wasn't that easy also because the people who came there, who, they weren't used to something also different. Also, before that, it was, a, I guess, an official gallery. I mean, it's not a commercial gallery. I have to say, it's a, how do you say, communal gallery, municipal I, gallery? Yeah, how do you I say that? that? I mean, people say a non-for-profit space or if it's a project room. But no, it's not. No it's definition. from the city. It's financed by the... Maybe it is a communal gallery. Communal gallery, I think, yeah, because it's financed by Friedrich sein Kreuzberg. So um, that's a huge difference, of course, because you don't have to think about if you can sell the works or anything. You can just focus on the art or the artist that you're interested in. For me, it was amazing to be there because I had the possibility to organize exhibitions and for two years to have a space. I had a very small budget. I think I organized eight exhibitions the year, so it was oh, wow. quite ambitious. Yeah. <laughs> and also some projects in the public space before in front of the gallery and also events like performances lectures, things like that. What year was this? 2011 and 12. 11 and 12. I mean, there's a good chance that I went to some of these without realizing. Oh, yeah, probably. Yeah, because I mean, it's, it's very oh, close. I, I yeah. live near there, so. Yeah, sure. I'd probably have been a few times. <laughs> I mean, the area's changed quite a bit now because there used to be a lot of galleries along Karl Marx Allee, but yeah, they've all turned into furniture shops or real estate agents. I know, it has changed. Once you'd finished the two years of the program in gallerium term, what happened next? Yeah, actually, I decided to be an independent curator <laughs> afterwards. Yeah, I started my own company. I, um, yeah, that was the next step. So, yeah, and of course, always it has its advantages and disadvantages. You also know that, but I really like it. Sometimes also institutions come up to me and ask me if I, I would like to curate a show or write a text or do a workshop. So is it then, as an independent curator, what is involved? You're writing texts, you're obviously putting exhibitions together, but you, are people approaching you? Is it like any kind of independent work where you're always trying to find the next project? Usually, I think it is like every kind of independent work. You're always like involved in something, mm -hmm. you know, and you are working on a project, but you always have to think about a little bit what comes next, you yeah. know, of course, because you need the money. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like that. And um, yeah, I think it's a mixture of people or institutions asking me if I would like to do a job and then sometimes also I don't have the time because I'm involved in something or I have the time and then I can do it and I'm working on my own concepts you know my own exhibitions my ideas I think as an independent curator you work on a lot of ideas and I have so many projects on my desk which haven't been realized yet for example yeah. because you always need some funding you always need an institution you need partners to cooperate with you, I think, briefly mentioned, not today, but we spoke before, that you were working for the Hamburger Bahnhof for a while, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Berlin. Mm -hmm. That was in 2017, 2018. They had this exhibition, Hello World. There, It was actually compromised by a lot of exhibitions, and it was maybe the first time one project 
was shown in the whole Hamburger Bahnhof, like in every space. Mm -hmm. They started a lot of years in advance, but I only worked one year or one and a half years for them. And I actually worked for the educational program, but we also organized one part of the exhibition and we also organized an event program. And that's what I did uh, several times before, also with my colleague, Hannah Beckmanagetta. Okay. I think in 2014, Hannah and me, we had our first project together. And it was the event program for the graduate exhibition of the art school Weissensee. Weissensee. Oh, you mentioned Weissensee before when you were at yes. the Freie Universität. Yeah. So the Weissensee school, they invited you back or you approached them? Yeah, I think it was just like I spoke to some friends who was who studied still at the art school and they said, oh yeah, you know, we are looking for someone. And it was funny because Hannah at the same time spoke to other friends and they, they told her the same. And at the same time, we started meeting up and exchanging our experiences. And oh, we, you didn't know each other before then? Yeah, we. it was the same time we started to know each other other better like mm -hmm. we know each other from the art scene but we started to talk more on some openings and we we already had said oh yeah we could do a project together you know and it was really funny because then it was obvious okay let's do it together you yeah, know cool. and we from then on we did several projects together do you still work independently or you mostly work together with Hannah on your exhibitions I think our own concepts, like own ideas, we do mainly together, not all of them, but mainly. And I did some jobs on my own. For the Hamburger Bahnhof, for example, of course, we developed the program, we developed the space together with Susanne Weiss and Daniela Bistron. But it was also a job, for example, for the Museum of Fine Arts. Now the Zero Waste exhibition, it's different because it was my idea and Hannah and me, we developed the concept together and everything from the beginning. I guess you're like Lennon and McCartney. Both your names are on there. <laughs> it's maybe less common that you would have a pair of curators. You'd have two people working together. Like, how is it in your experience? Is it mostly curators like, no, it's my vision, I want to do this? Or you would have groups of people collaborating? Oh, I'm sure it's difficult to find people to work with and it really works very well. I think I'm very lucky to uh, that I found Tana and we can work together that well. And I think that it's so great to have an exchange you know when we talk about our plans and our concepts so many ideas come up yes you know what i mean yes absolutely i have a lot of friends for example who are not in the art scene and of course i have also a lot of friends in the art scene but i don't talk to them like every day you know and i think it's uh, it's very very um fruitful um, fruitful? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, maybe. maybe. Fruit, yeah, uh, like a lot of ideas come up. And it's also nice to have a person who can continue to work when you have, for example, another job or yeah, something, yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah, that must be good. So it's very helpful. And yeah, it's fun for me. I... We even write texts together. Yeah. Yeah. It's for us, it's fun. For example, now the, our exhibition for the Museum of Fine Arts, it's a lot of work, of course. And it's also nice to share. And, um, you know. I think even if I think about my own experience within the curative communities, running the gallery or with doing music, because it is such an intense 
exercise, having another person to exchange or to debrief with or to get feedback from is hugely beneficial. I think it can be really underestimated how helpful it can be. And like you mentioned before, with new ideas being generated, definitely from my own experience, that when you've got two people working together, where one person puts an idea forward and that other person reacts off that idea, then you get a new idea from the exchange that neither of you would have developed by yourself. Definitely. And of course, you have also the communication with the artists. We develop also a lot of ideas and our concepts when we make the studio visits and when we talk to artists or to other people in the art scene. But it's something different when you work that closely together, you know, and you can really speak about some details, you yeah. know, that pe other people maybe are not that interested, like in every detail, you know. And, and Was there a specific project over the past few years that was a really defining moment for you? I mean, I'd say for both of you, but I guess Hannah isn't here. Well, I think our exhibition in Vienna in 2016, yeah. we organized a, an exhibition together at Kunsthalle Exnergasse in Vienna. And um, yeah, so this was the biggest project until then. It was a group show called The Impossibility of Being. Was that the first international one? It was the first exhibition outside of Berlin, mm -hmm. but it was mostly with artists from Berlin, mm -hmm. I think. But still, like you're but in still, a... still, it was in Vienna, of course. Uncharted territory. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> it makes such a big difference. I mean, only the transport, for example, mm -hmm. you have to organize that all the artworks somehow will be there and yeah, know, things like that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's well, of course, bring them back as well. Yeah, it's uh, something else then. But this was definitely a great experience already four years ago. Hannah and me, we both have families now and it's also nice to have someone you can rely on when you, for example, just got a baby or something. <laughs> <you know? laughs> so, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so with the, I guess with the current exhibition that opens in, is it opening in March? Yes, the 26th of March 26th is of the March. opening. It's very soon. Yes. How many years or how, what was the kind of the, I've lost all my words this morning, the planning process for that one? So, Hannah and me, as I said before, we have like loads of projects <laughs> on our desk and loads of projects we we are kind of like working on or have in our minds. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we just have lunch together and speak about the ideas we have. Yeah. And then we say, we decide on which ideas we want to focus and which ideas we really want to try to get the money for and to find an institution and things like that. And actually, I came up with this zero waste idea because in my private life, I try to live more kind of this minimalism lifestyle, you know, yeah. and I it's always a few years ago, you know, and I started to consume less, try to avoid packages and I live vegetarian mm -hmm. and things like that, you know, and just to uh, be a little bit more responsible in my consumer behavior. I always had the vision as a curator to have also a political social impact. I knew that I would I would love to do something which could really inspire other institutions or um, you know maybe to change really something. Yeah, definitely. So I came up with this idea. It was just an initial idea in the beginning and then 
Hannah and me, we already knew a lot of artists who were working on topics like sustainability. We knew also some artists who just have, for example, one work which could fit in the concept. And then we, we just started to speak with people, to visit some artists in their studio, to look at artworks, to speak about potential site-specific works, things like that. And we tried to get a funding. And it was actually the first time we had first the money and then we uh, started to find a institution, a location. So we presented our first concept to the Umweltbundesamt, the German Environment Agency. Mm -hmm. And they liked it. But, you know, you have to imagine it's all like a very, very long process. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We started two and a half years ago. So it was long before the Fridays for Future movement and long before those topics of sustainability, they are really like high fashion now, kind of. And it was before that. It's a long process to get the money, to find a location yeah, and things like that. I guess audiences maybe don't realize that sometimes so they might think, oh, the Fine Art Museum's on trend. And then we, we started planning this exhibition three years ago. I know, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, yeah. In 2019, we suddenly thought oh my god now like everyone is talking about the subject <laughs> okay what do we do but then we decided that must to, be good though that, surely exactly we decided to like it and we just we said okay i mean it's good you know because that's what we want actually that everyone is talking about it that maybe there are some other shows mm -hmm. you know with also like similar topics but that's what we want because we want the change exactly. in the world and we want people to talk about the environment and the relationship of the culture and nature and so it's the best what can happen absolutely just as a side note then do you think not just artists but then curators have a, a social responsibility to try to make people aware of topics such as sustainability and the environment well i think you definitely have a responsibility also as a curator and as an artist. I think also that art is like a catalyst and exhibitions can be like a catalyst and can make a change, definitely, you know, because we create a space where people come together, where people talk about different topics. I think it definitely can make a change and I feel responsible also. And I think we, as an individual person, you really have to do something. It's already five past twelve, you know, <laughs> so you really have to react now. That's what we are trying to do, basically, and what a lot of art we work with try to do together we create a project which hopefully can make a little bit of difference thinking about that in the context of this show will there be parallel talks presentations events with the goal of raising awareness and getting people to think about their own behavior and maybe change for the better the first project Hannah and me did together was an event program, what I, what I told you. And um, this program was interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. So what we did was we invited not only curators, gallerists to come to the graduate exhibition, but also like some scientists like and, and people from very different backgrounds. We thought about like some topics, you know, of the graduate exhibition. And then we had those talks. We developed the walk the talk format. And that's what we still do. And we also will do now for the Zero Waste show. So, of course, it is a contemporary art show, what we are doing. Yeah. And that's also important for us. And it's important for the 
artist that it is contemporary art. It is not a scientific exhibition. It is a show in a big museum of fine arts. We speak with the arts, but also we have this event program and we also work with a, with some local partners. For example, in Leipzig, there's a repair cafe and they will do a repair cafe in the exhibition so people can come there and instead of buying something new, like there will be experts helping them to repair things and we will have some DIY workshops and things like that also. You mentioned you were doing programs parallel, thinking in terms of an exhibition. And I mean, we've tried to do it with the gallery, but it's always, I think it's difficult planning with time, mm -hmm. getting people together, especially in Berlin, because there's always 10 other things you could be doing. Rather than the exhibition being the end point, it's almost the starting point. So you have the exhibition, but then from that, initiates a dialogue or that asks questions so that people can either get direct connection with the artists, with the work, and then maybe like new ideas are brought to them rather than going to the show and that being where it stops. In a sense, that's almost like where it starts for the, for the audience, perhaps. Definitely. I think the art outreach program and art mediation always is a part I'm thinking of from the beginning when I, when I plan an exhibition because it's so important to think, okay, what people will come to the exhibition what do they expect what events can we offer we are very lucky now to be in leipzig of course because it's as you said in berlin yeah. you have a lot of concurrence <laughs> of course i mean mm -hmm. there are like loads of events and in leipzig maybe it's a little bit easier and also it is in a big museum and our walk the talk it will be on the same time they have usually the guided tours oh perfect you know? yeah and so i think this is really great and then also of the team of the kunstvermittlung outreach they help us a lot and they will be there and mm -hmm. you know contextualize everything and of course we are very lucky i remember years ago when i went to dusseldorf and i met with some different institutes and with smaller galleries and i think because there's still cities leipzig is still a city but of course because it's yeah. a smaller community you know that if i'm not doing it then no one's going to do it and everybody mm -hmm. often bands together whereas i think for better or worse we get a bit spoiled sometimes in berlin you're like oh i can just go to that or it'll be on for longer or there's something else to go and I know, see and then it's over oh, yeah and then you miss yeah, it so that's it, always yeah. the the downside how, actually, I always forget. How far is Leipzig from Berlin? It's very close. It's just like one hour one and hour. 15 minutes by train. Yeah. For us, it's amazing because I think a lot of people from Berlin will also come to yeah. the opening and also to come and see the exhibition. It's also great because we think this zero waste, it's not only the topic of the show, but we think it as a whole concept. We try to avoid as much as possible like the material for the artworks for example we show a video in a projection of Mika Rottenberg and she is famous for her like huge installations video installations and Mika and we we decided together to only show the video and not build something new for the exhibition then some other objects that it was like a sculpture who was in Australia for example we won't show it because otherwise we would have transported it there are some other transports we avoided for the show and we work with Andreas Greiner the artist and he is since a few years he's uh, working on some projects with trees and the forest and for our exhibition he will calculate the CO2 footprint of the exhibition the flights 
train um, everything like material you will calculate everything and then we will try to compensate it by planting trees with his artistic project and i think it would be great to inspire also other institutions because of course you can do a show about sustainability and about zero waste but what do you do yourself you know also not in your private life but in the professional life exactly And the, the institutions, they make exhibitions, for example, and then they throw all the material just away after the exhibition. And yeah, uh, yeah what happens to, to all the material? For example, we have been now in Leipzig um, several times and asked them what we can use for our exhibitions, you know, if they can like keep something for us, which we can use for other installations or maybe like build a plinth or we can use plinths, which they already have or Things like that, you know, just small things. I guess it's out of the ordinary. Like, it's not extreme. You kind of think in practical terms, why don't we do this more often? Exactly. With exhibitions and with events and with so many things, even if the message is, let's reduce our waste, the event itself creates a lot of waste. Then you kind of think, are we missing the irony here with how much we're championing yeah. what we're doing? But we're part of the problem. Yeah. And until you can, I guess, set a good example or find ways of conveying the message that support the message. Yeah. And it sounds like without seeing it and hearing the, the planning and the insight, the zero waste walks the talk by saying, well, we're talking about this, but look, we're actually doing it. And this is how we've... Mm. This is how we've reduced our carbon footprint or our environmental impact. Of course, and you always have to find a balance, you know. I mean, zero waste is impossible, of course. Zero is impossible, but we also decided to have some flights. For example, two artists who come from Indonesia and they are also coming to Leipzig. But we organized that all the artists who come from abroad and who needs to have a long distance flight, that they have other projects in Germany or maybe Europe, you know, so that nobody comes only for our exhibition. And I think this is also a way because I think, of course, you can have a Skype interview or something, but I think it's not the same. And I think it's very important to have the discussion in person, you know, mm -hmm. and to exchange. For us, it was very important to have like international artists in the boat who also live in different parts of the world because the waste problem is different in Indonesia, for example than in Germany or it's different in South Africa. For example, um, Viva Galotra lives in New Delhi in India and she told us that her family and her friends and she herself, they have all really severe health problems because of the particulate matters in the air, because of the, the smog and the dust problems oh, in New really, Delhi. Yeah. It's really a huge problem. Lucky us, it's not that a big problem here in Berlin. And she also reflects on those problems in, in her work and... So this is really great that we can have really the discussion in Leipzig together. And so, I mean, we could have said, okay, we won't pay any flights, but, yeah. you know, I think this makes sense. You need, yeah, exactly. You need to have a trade-off. You can't just think, we'll do nothing. Yeah, and, and we didn't want to ex exclude the, yeah. the people who don't live in Leipzig or Berlin mm -hmm. also, you know. You, you have to find a balance, but I think it's always like that, you know, when, for example, some people, they try to avoid flying 10 times the year and other people maybe live vegan and other people do something else, but it's impossible to be perfect. And of course, the politics have to do something. Of course, you can do every single one can do something, but the responsibility is also somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
Definitely, I think things need to come from a policy level. I guess from a top down, the government do need to guide people and be a good, um, be good role models. But I mean, yeah, you mentioned veganism. Like my wife and I are vegan since I always forget when now. A few years, maybe four or five years. I can't remember exactly when it was. And maybe just because of how we, our personalities are, and our thinking that once we know this is the way that something is, I can't unknow that information now. I have to change my behaviour. Like the classic excuse, I think, with recycling is people go, oh, but, you know, this big company, they deposit this amount of waste into the ocean or they burn all this stuff. So what difference does it make if I split up my rubbish into the different coloured bins? Rather than looking at it like that, I'd rather think, I know that I'm not part of the problem. I know that I'm doing as much as I can, even if all these other industries and other people are doing it. I think if enough people in the population or the general public are making a difference, then it incentivizes larger companies to do something because they realize when people make decisions about things, they make decisions with when they spend money. Even thinking about in the time that I've lived in Berlin, you can get a little an Aldi, like the cheap, cheap supermarkets, you can get vegan products. Like it's not just you have to go to the beer laden or you have to go to one of the posh supermarket that's got everything that's ecological and locally sourced. Should you be making the right decisions? And of course, at little in those places, maybe it isn't the best, but even the fact that a lot of the products that they stock now, they have like the V on them and they say, yeah, this is vegan, this is vegan. It shows that companies are recognizing that people make decisions based on whether it's vegan or if it's not vegan or if it's fair trade or not fair trade. For the most part, people probably still, this one's five euros, this one's three. I'll get the one that's three because it's cheaper. But more people, I think now, are deciding based on, am I going to feel okay about this being shipped from South America from somewhere I don't know about or do I want to get the ones that are grown around the corner, even if I have to pay an extra two euros? Um, sometimes it's also difficult to decide, of course, because sometimes you have to decide, okay, do I buy the organic tomatoes which are grown in Spain for example under like huge amounts of plastic or do I buy the the non-organic tomatoes which are grown around the corner you know like, so things like that it's very difficult but I think what you mentioned before that people think that they cannot make a difference I think you just have to imagine if like millions of people decide okay I won't buy for example this uh, coffee to go or something yeah. if it's millions Yeah. that make these decisions. It's millions cups which you avoid. Of course, it makes a difference. Of course, it makes a difference. And as I said, it's not possible to be perfect. No. I remember once when we were at dinner, I, I guess as a vegan, you come up against this where people go, oh, do you want to try the cake or whatever? And you're like, no, it's okay. I don't want to have anything. And they keep pushing and pushing. You're like, okay, look, I'm a vegan. I can't eat it for that reason. And then, oh, you're drinking wine. Is that wine vegan? Okay, I'm 95% or I'm, you know, I'm almost doing everything that That's I can. That's what about his <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what about the wine? Yeah. And it, and I think the thing is when people go, oh, but you're not being completely sustainable. It's like, well, I don't live in a sustainable world. Like there's only so many things that I can do. And it's okay. And and I think it has so much to do with the things you are used to do. You know, for example, I'm just used to have my own bottle, for example, with me or just like a small bag in case I want to buy something, a bread or whatever. Yeah, same. I just have, have the bag, you know, I just have it always in my rucksack with me, you know, things like that. I think it's just those small things. You just remember to take your whatever, like your glasses or your mobile phone and also the bag and the bottle. Yeah, exactly. It's more to do with, I was going to say with Gewohnlichkeit, but what is it in English? Gewohnheit. Um, <laughs> yeah, with, um, with your, what you're used to doing. Okay, and now I only can think of the Spanish word. 
<laughs> Costumbre. Yeah, with your daily routines yes. and things that you're doing. Because yeah. I think I remember for me, there was one point when I was cooking once and I'd made a soup. And this was before we were vegan. I think maybe we were vegetarian. I was part-time vegetarian. Like I'd made a mushroom soup. Before I put the milk in, I thought, oh, it's vegan now. But in my mind, it wasn't finished until I added milk to it. And then once you kind of get over that psychological barrier, you're like, well, actually, it's, it's okay. Like you don't need to add that yeah. to it. Yeah, and I think once you start to live vegan, you you know, there are some people who think, okay, you can only eat salad or something, but it's not like that. You can eat like loads of stuff. I think, uh, yeah, and that's a really great living in Berlin because everywhere in you, can, really good, yeah. you can have such a great vegan food and yeah, it's amazing. I, I love that. Actually, we also have a, an artwork in our exhibition which uh, is related to this topic, like veganism. Bianca Kennedy and the Swan Collective, they did this virtual reality piece. They created like a future scenario where bugs are the food for us you know like yeah, loads of bugs have that, you yeah. heard about it yeah. yeah and in this virtual reality experience you are a bug yourself oh really you, know? <laughs> you look through the eyes of the bug and you move and you you get swallowed by a, a human being and <laughs> um yeah and then the the bugs were asking okay but why can not a whale you know, like such a big animal cannot be the food. And why us, you know, like millions of us and they start a kind of fight and things. And you can see that in our show. How did you, sorry, I guess getting back to the art. <laughs> <laughs> now we're talking about, yeah, global problems. But how did you select the artists? Was it ones within your existing network or you knew mm. where you're going to look for people looking at specific topics or themes? Because you already mentioned someone's coming from Indonesia, there's somebody from Cape Town or from uh, South Africa. Did you intentionally want people from different cultural backgrounds and different parts of the world when you were curating the show? Yes. In this case, yes, because it totally makes sense. It's a global topic. Okay, we started with some artists we already knew, Mm -hmm. mainly from Berlin. We had some studio visits and talked to some artists about uh, what works could fit in the topic or what, what would they like to develop for the show. Some artists are also developing some site-specific works. And then we did a lot of research also. For example, the South African artist, he is a photographer and he's very young. I was actually in Cape Town a few years ago and went to the graduate exhibition of the art school there mm -hmm. in Cape Town and saw the work and I remembered it and I thought, okay, maybe it would be great to have a very, very young artist from mm -hmm. South Africa in the show. But I guess when you saw his work, you didn't know yet where you wanted to put it. No. I think just as a side note, it's probably also good for artists to realize that when a curator or a gallery a gallerist sees their work and it's like, I need to find the right place for this. Because I'd had the experience with people from portfolio reviews that I'd seen, or I'd seen a really great project. It's like, I want to show this, but I don't know yet where I can show it. And Definitely. then it's like two or three years later, and then you kind of write an email or phone them up and go, oh, guess what? I've got the perfect position to show this work. Definitely. And so that was the case with the, the young artist from... South exactly. Africa. And then some other artists also, for example, the artists from Indonesia, actually, Tita Salina had a work at the Hamburger Bahnhof show I was involved with. And I just spoke to her and it, it really fits in our concepts, you know, coincidentally a little bit also. And it is
does a video work and mm -hmm. you know they are from Indonesia and actually those are the ones who have a big uh, sculpture also so we decided only to show the video work and for us it's actually only possible to show the video because otherwise we would have made a transport and that's what we want to avoid. I would also be quite expensive I imagine if you're shipping a sculpture from Indonesia. Of course I mean it's quite expensive that's a discussion we had a lot of times in the past months with artists who say okay yeah I'm actually avoiding waste because of the precarious lifestyle <laughs> kind of you know <laughs> you know I mean it's like that also um, yeah. but of course some artists are also very conscious but sometimes you also avoid material or transports because you cannot afford it <laughs> yeah i mean sometimes it's just not an option yeah but for example raul walch you know he's a an artist who works mainly with textiles one of the reasons he works with textiles is because even a huge sculpture or installation he just can put like in a small box and take it with him in the train oh. he has worked in almeria in spain there's like huge plantage out of plastic mm -hmm. where the vegetables grow also for Germany and it's huge it's a country out of plastic <laughs> yeah. kind of he collected a lot of material like different plastics and nets and he also spent time there and he said it's everywhere it's like flying around you like uh, hanging in the bushes oh, flying really? into the sea you know and he will um or he's building a mobile now for one of the 14 meter high terraces in the museum we're looking forward to it so how much have you got to do still so let me think yeah we are working on the catalog all the money we get will um sorry ich weiß gerade nicht wie ich das auf englisch sagen um, all the money we receive for mm -hmm. the catalog will go into the project of Andreas Greiner, who will calculate the carbon footprint of the show and who will plant trees. This is a lot of work because we have to write lots of texts and work with the graphic designers on the catalog. And the catalog will be published shortly after the opening because we really want to have installation shots in the catalog. So this is one thing Then we still have to organize the program i mean there are some events are set but some still are not set and yeah i think then the next step is also the transport and setting up the exhibition and i'm really looking forward to it i love setting up exhibitions yeah. <laughs> i think it's so great when you've worked like for years or like months on a project and then finally you can see the, the end result i'm really looking forward to it but also for the site-specific works. I guess till now they've not been realized. How many of those are there? In total? Yeah. Okay, we have 20, oh, total, 21 actually. artists, yeah. and but there are three duos, so mm -hmm. 18 positions. Mm -hmm. Most of the artists at least have two, three or four works. So I think it's... 900 square meters. It's huge. Wow. It's on uh, The exhibition will be on two floors. Mm -hmm. One space will be a black box with three video works. But we don't have that much time, actually, only a few days to set up everything. So we have to be really organized. But I will be in Leipzig the whole time. Yeah, and you'll have a team, I guess, building and everything as well. Definitely, yeah. Nearly all the artists will be there for setting up the exhibition. How long does the show go for? Three months. Until the 21st of June. Cool. All right, thanks a lot, Lena. This was really nice to chat and to learn more about what you're doing. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. 
hopefully we'll still have an opportunity to see Zero Waste in the not too distant future. I'd recommend following their Instagram feed at Zero Waste Exhibition, which is all one word, and the hashtag MDBK Zero Waste for updates. It's possible that the museum will be organising a live chat online with Lena, Hannah, and potentially one or more of the participating artists. But as nothing is confirmed, you'll have to follow the social media to find out when this will ultimately take place. Obviously, it's a difficult and complicated time for everyone right now. However, the exhibition team are doing what they can under the circumstances to bring the art and important message to the audiences around the world. If nothing else, I really hope this episode has provided some temporary relief from what's going on right now. Who knows what the situation will be like in a few weeks or even tomorrow. I just hope everyone's taken the necessary precautions to flatten the curve, that you're looking out for one another, and above all, staying inside. This is actually episode 20 of Subtext and Discourse, so thanks everyone who's participated so far, and of course everyone who's joined us along the way. Until next time, my name's Michael Dooney, stay healthy and take care.